Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 21st edition of the WorkCop Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Skarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The California Court of Appeal ruled that an employer cannot refuse to hire a worker based upon a single medical examination alone. In this case, La Voya Price suffered a stroke in 2003 that initially left her paralyzed. After years of treatment, she eventually regained the use of her body and relearned how to speak, stand, and walk, yet she did not fully recover. Price suffered some permanent paralysis, which limited her ability to walk and and the use of her left foot. By 2007, Price's condition had improved, but she still struggled with grasping and holding items, although she could hold small items without them falling. Price first worked part-time for the defendant in this case, Victor Valley Unified School District, in 2006 as a substitute paraeducator for special needs students. She was not required to take or pass a physical examination for the position, and she did not tell the district she had a disability or any medical restrictions. She returned to the district again in February 2018 when she was hired as a substitute instructional assistant for special education students and was then assigned to work one-on-one with an autistic student who would sometimes run away from teachers and aides, including Price. A few months later, Price applied for a full-time position as an instructional assistant for special needs students and received an offer for full-time position that was contingent upon passing a physical exam. When she failed the physical exam for not being medically suitable for the position, The district rescinded the offer, terminated her as a substitute, and disqualified her from any future employment with the district. But the part-time duties she had been performing and the full-time instructional assistant positions have the same duties and responsibilities. As a part-time instructional assistant, Price was assigned to a one-on-one position with a runner and she successfully performed that position before being offered the full-time position, even though she frequently had to run after her students. Price sued the district for retaliation and various disability-related claims, but the trial court granted summary judgment in favor of the district. Price contended on appeal that the trial court erroneously granted summary judgment to the district because she said there are triable issues of fact concerning all of her claims. The Court of Appeal agreed as to her first claim for disability discrimination, but disagreed as to the rest of her claims in the published case of Price versus Victor Valley Union High School District. On appeal, the district asserts the fact that Price failed her physical examination, which means that she was not qualified to perform the job. But the Court of Appeal disagreed. The district argued that the 2000 Quinn versus City of Los Angeles case 
stood for the broad proposition that an employer may always impose physical requirements as a condition for employment and thus may always refuse to hire someone who does not meet those requirements. In the Quinn case they cited, the plaintiff was a police officer and was not qualified for the position because he failed a sound localization test due to a hearing impairment. The ability to localize sound is particularly significant to police officers in split-second life-threatening situations where an officer cannot clearly see. The Quinn court held that the plaintiff's termination was lawful because he was never initially qualified for the position as a matter of law. But the Quinn case did not hold that employers have unfettered discretion to deny employment to anyone who fails a physical test, as the district suggests on appeal. Because the determination of essential job functions is a highly fact-specific inquiry, it is usually an issue of fact for the jury to decide. The district contends the job had physical demands that Price could not meet, namely running after students. But even if true, the court said Price has raised a triable issue of fact as to whether this was an essential function of a full-time instructional assistant job. The District of Columbia Attorney General announced a lawsuit filed against the Washington Commanders football team, team owner Dan Snyder, the National Football League, and NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell for allegedly colluding to cover up an investigation into toxic workplace culture and allegations of sexual assault by the team. After years of public reporting and outcry in response to sexual assault, the workplace abuse allegations against the Washington Commander's executives, including the team owner Dan Snyder, the Office of the Attorney General took action and launched its own investigation in the fall of 2021 into the Commander's and the NFL's response to allegations of sexual harassment. They interviewed numerous witnesses, including former Commander's employees who experienced and witnessed harassment, and also reviewed thousands of internal documents produced by the Commander's and the NFL. The OAG's investigation revealed that the Commander's, the NFL, and their executives, Snyder and Goodell, worked to prevent district residents from learning the truth. According to the announcement, Behind the scenes, Snyder waged an interference campaign to cover up years of harassment, and the NFL let him do it. After the NFL took over the investigation from the commanders to publicly help ensure it was independent, the commanders and the NFL allegedly entered into an agreement that the public knew nothing about. The agreement declared they had a joint interest in the investigation and gave Snyder and the commanders the ability to block the public release of any information he chose, including the investigation's ultimate findings. And throughout the investigation, Snyder allegedly actively sought to interfere with it, including intimidating and suppressing witnesses. 
The Commanders are valued at $5.6 billion, and the NFL is roughly $18 billion a year industry. The Commanders and the NFL make money off of fans' ticket sales and purchases of merchandise and entertainment that is targeted to District of Columbia residents. The District Consumers Protection Procedures Act, CPPA, prohibits unfair and deceptive trade practices. The Office of Attorney General has brought authority under the CPPA to hold accountable any company or any head of a company if they mislead or lie to district consumers, regardless of where they are located. OAG's lawsuit seeks to hold the commanders, Snyder, the NFL, and Goodell accountable for violating the CPPA by lying to the public and, and district fans and withholding critical information. With this lawsuit, the Office of Attorney General is seeking financial penalties under the CPPA for every incident in which the commanders, Snyder, the NFL, and Goodell lied to district residents dating back to July 2020. And they're seeking a court order forcing the NFL to release the findings from attorney Beth Wilkinson's 10-month independent investigation into the commander's workplace culture to give the fans and the public the truth and information they expected. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation has announced that the 2023 minimum and maximum temporary total disability rates will increase on January 1, 2023. The minimum TTD rate will increase from $230.95 to $240.86, and the maximum TTD rate will increase from $1,539.71 to $1,619.15 per week. The Labor Code requires the maximum and minimum weekly earnings upon which TTD is made be increased by an amount equal to the percentage increase in the state average weekly wage, SAWW, as compared to the prior year. The SAWW is defined as the average weekly wage paid to employees covered by unemployment insurance as reported by the U.S. Department of Labor for California, for the 12 months ending March 31st and the year preceding the injury. In the 12 months ending March 31st, 2022, the SAWW increased 5.16%. The Labor Code provides workers who were injured after January 1st, 2003 and who were receiving life pension or permanent total disability benefits who are also entitled to have their weekly life pension or PD, PTD rate adjusted based on the SAWW increase. The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau of California, in collaboration with nine other workers' compensation rating bureaus, has jointly released a new report, COVID-19 and Workers' Compensation Phase 2, of the multi-bureau collaboration. One result of this effort is the creation of a COVID-19 claims database 
which includes a comprehensive view of COVID-19 claim characteristics and trends. The analysis does not include experience from self-insured employers or denial and expense-only claims. This analysis relied on data from 45 jurisdictions representing $1.1 billion in COVID-19-related losses from about 117,000 claims. The average claim cost during the two-year period was about $9,600. On average, COVID-19 claims decreased from 11% of workers' comp lost time claims reported in 2020 to just 4% in 2021. For 2021, the California COVID-19 claim share of 4% was similar to the national average. Approximately 75% of reported COVID-19 lost time claims were from the healthcare sector, while that sector only accounts for about 9% of non-COVID-19 lost time claims. In California, with its relatively broad presumptions, about one-half of COVID-19 insured employer claims were from the healthcare sector. COVID-19 was not a significant loss driver for most industry segments. Other, however, claims in the healthcare sector accounted for nearly 50% of all lost time claims and more than 20% of paid case losses. COVID-19 claims represent a small share of claims for other industries. Healthcare with overnight care, which includes retirement homes and nursing homes, had the highest relative share of COVID-19 claims. On average, COVID-19 claims have closed faster than non-COVID-19 claims, primarily due to the higher prevalence of indemnity-only COVID-19 claims. Uncertainties remain about the long-term impact of COVID-19. John Duncan is a former director of the California Department of Industrial Relations, and he served under two California governors, and he is very critical of how Cal OSHA has evolved its COVID regulations. He just published a commentary on Cal Matters that claims Last-minute changes to Cal OSHA's COVID regulations are a mistake. And he clarifies that there's a right way and a wrong way to draft a new regulation, and they have gone about it in the wrong way. He says that when adopting difficult workplace policies, rulemakers should notify the public and involve stakeholders. Unfortunately, the California Occupational Safety and Health Agency is poised to make a mistake next month on their two-year extension of California's COVID rules by squeezing in an unannounced significant change to the rule at the last minute. Last month, four members of Cal OSHA Standards Board ordered the agency staff to rewrite the draft regulations and add exclusion pay, which is essentially paid sick leave for an employee who tests positive or is exposed to COVID. If they change the regulation, stakeholders across California will see a significant change made just before the final vote on this two-year extension of COVID precautions. But 
He says that the merits of whether Cal OSHA should continue requiring exclusion pay is not the issue. There is a legitimate concern about exclusion pay and another legitimate discussion about whether emergency regulations should be extended past the end of the COVID emergency declaration in a few months. His main point, however, is that resolving complicated and important questions requires time to gather data and talks with effective communities and only then generate workable solutions. In his tenure as director of California's Department of Industrial Relations, he said occupational safety and health standards were subject to a thorough vetting process centered around the goal of establishing consensus by using scientific evidence and other underlying data. Maintaining a fair, even-handed, and transparent process, he said, is critical for ensuring democratic rulemaking and effective compliance with standards that protect California's workers and employers alike. The question today is how should a regulation be drafted in such a challenging climate? And the answer, he said, is with data, careful preparation, and stakeholder involvement. In 2009, he pointed out, Cal-OSHA adopted similar regulations for aerosol transmissible diseases in healthcare settings, and this was not some weak regulation with illusory protections. It was a first-in-the-nation standard and included specific provisions related to training, protective equipment, record-keeping, and much more. Most surprisingly, the rules passed without any opposition when the Cal OSHA Standards Board voted on it. That, he said, was something that may seem unthinkable in today's divisive times. A consensus regulation based on scientific data, expert shareholder input, and careful discussion. So Cal OSHA should look to its past successes and not make such a big change at the last second. Rulemaking is occasionally awkward, loud, disagreeable, and painfully slow, but he says it is the best system out there for such important decisions. And in medical news, EK Health announced its new Billtelligent, that's what they call it, Billtelligent Medical Review Technology. The company is a national workers' compensation and managed care organization and is a major vendor of utilization and bill review services for California claims administrators. EK Health just announced the launch of Billtelligent proprietary technology that it says is taking medical bill review and workers' compensation to the next level. It said that Billtelligent eliminates barriers for EK Health empowering and independence the National Managed Care Company had not previously realized. Bill Telligent leverages a unique cloud-based, modular design focused on efficient bill handling through innovative strategies supported by nimble technology. The company says it promotes flexibility through intelligent routing, automation, auto-adjudication, 
and the ability to customize workflows with incredible specificity and without cumbersome management requirements. EK Health's owner and CEO said that with Bill Telligent, the company has control at all levels, will be faster, flexible, and more accurate, and will be better optimized with managed care strategies and improved quality of care for injured workers. Its vice president of business development said the company has been asked many times to demystify medical bill review due to the unnecessary complexities, exorbitant fees, and undisclosed revenue sharing that exists today. And transparency required full ownership of the company's processes and its technology. And EK Health's president and chief operating officer explained that the company needed to be free from the constraints of leased software. And so, with Bill Telligent, the company has direct access to PPOs, allowing it to create its own onboarding and custom network design. The announcement concluded by saying, this innovative technology is not just meeting clients where they are today, but is also taking them into the future with nimble solutions realizing immediate gains. And Amazon is stepping back into virtual care with a new service that uses secure messaging to connect patients with doctors for help with nearly two dozen conditions. The retail giant said it will launch Amazon Clinic in 32 states to provide medication refills and care for conditions like allergies, erectile dysfunction, hair loss, migraines, and urinary tract infections. But the list does not include the flu, COVID-19, ear infections, or other urgent care conditions for which patients often seek help through telemedicine. Amazon said it will work to add other conditions over time to the service and also plans to expand these services to more states in the coming months. Virtual care, or telemedicine, exploded in popularity when COVID-19 hit a couple years ago, and patients hunkered down in their homes to avoid catching the virus. Its use has since waned, but remains popular for its convenience and its ability to improve access to care. Some doctors had started providing care through secure messaging before the pandemic. They began working through companies like 98.6 or Cirrus MD, which touts the ability to connect people with a doctor in less than a minute. Tuesday's announcement from Amazon comes more than two months after the company said it will shut down Amazon Care, a hybrid virtual in-home service it spent years developing. The company launched launched that service in 2019 for its Washington employees. It expanded it last year, allowing private employers nationwide to sign up for the service. But that effort did not get much traction. So the company shifted its target, announced in July, that it planned to acquire One Medical, a primary care organization that as of March had about 767,000 members 
and 188 medical offices in 25 markets. The $3.9 billion deal was seen as a way for Amazon to reposition its health ambitions toward a model that was more established and could be more profitable. The Federal Trade Commission is reviewing that deal. The current Amazon CEO said he sees healthcare as a growth opportunity for the company beyond its more established retail and cloud computing businesses. Amazon's foray into healthcare also includes Amazon Pharmacy, an online drugstore that allows its prime members to order medication or prescription refills and have them delivered to their front door in a couple of days. Amazon said Amazon Pharmacy and One Medical were two key parts of its healthcare plans, but also knows that sometimes a customer just needs a quick interaction with a clinician for a common health concern that can be easily addressed virtually. Industry leaders shared ideas at a huge healthcare conference in Las Vegas this week. When HLTH launched in 2017, it embarked on an ambitious goal to disrupt the status quo for such events within the healthcare industry. It set out to bring a new vision that embodied the industry's highest aspirations for innovation and transformation, all while evolving the antiquated approaches that have existed for decades. Healthcare is complex, and the community HLTH serves is multi-layered and consists of diverse individuals and organizations from around the world. As the health industry experiences a period of rapid change, one important adaptation HLTH is making is a focus on audience journeys, tailoring pathways through content, programs, and meetings based on a deeper learning about each population that interacts with them. Over the past five years, HLTH has become the preeminent event in the healthcare industry, and this year's industry event took place in Las Vegas starting on November 13th. Content sessions this year showcased the most exciting, compelling thinkers and industry leaders, and this year included the Startup Health Festival, which has gathered thousands of CEOs, investors, world leaders, and entrepreneurs to focus on solving the world's biggest health challenges. And indeed, the fifth annual event drew thousands of healthcare leaders and innovators to Las Vegas. It's only five years old, but HLTH Conference has emerged as a big deal in healthcare. More than 300 people were expected to speak at the event, and the Google Cloud CEO spoke to healthcare and technology leaders, outlining some of the company's latest news and talking about how technology is changing the industry. Google Cloud is working with payers, providers, and pharmaceutical companies, and it is an ecosystem that needs to deliver the care that people need. Google Cloud and Epic, the electronic health records firm, have signed an agreement hailed as the first step in enabling customers to run their Epic workloads on the Google Cloud.
Meridian Health said it plans to move its Epic workloads to Google Cloud, touting gains in efficiency, innovation, and security. Even with the COVID-19 pandemic and its assorted challenges, HCA Healthcare said the company has emerged with a commitment to embrace the healthcare technology. And the Gessinger CEO made a case for value-based care and outlined impressive statistics demonstrating the effectiveness of Geisinger's home-based health program and an initiative to help patients get better food. But to engage in such efforts, you need a payment model that supports it, and the company made the case for health systems to move more toward value-based care and away from the traditional fee-for-service model. With value-based care, health systems are rewarded for improving patients' health and are essentially taking on the risk that they will be successful in keeping patients healthy or at least from avoiding more costly care. The Geisinger at Home program, which brings healthcare professionals to patients' homes to manage complex conditions, has enjoyed considerable success. Patients in those programs have 36% lower hospitalization rates, and they have seen a 20% reduction in emergency department visits. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. <music>